Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Jürgen Larsson. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Alison Berner, who is a clinical research fellow in medical oncology and speciality doctor in gender identity medicine. Uh, she does a cancer work at the Barts Cancer Institute at uh, Queen Mary University of London and her clinical work at Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust in London. And the paper is Attitudes of Trans Men and Non-Binary People to UK Cerv- Cervical Screening. Obviously, we have a UK National Health Service cervical screening program and trans men and non-binary people assigned female at birth can experience barriers to accessing adequate screening and are less likely to engage than cisgender women. I started by asking Alison to tell us a little bit more about the background and context so that we can understand her research. Okay, so for those who are not familiar with um, trans health, so trans men are those people who were assigned female at birth but identify as male. Uh, And this research thinks about them and also non-binary people with a cervix. So again, assigned female at birth, um, but they identify in a different way that's neither completely masculine or feminine. Um, And a great number of those people, particularly those who are non-binary, but also trans men, um, will still have a cervix when um, they get to screening age, so from 25, um, at which point we'd ask them to come for cervical screening every three to five years. And that's recommended by Public Health England in the same way as it would be for a cisgender woman, so someone who was assigned female at birth and identifies as female. Um, and that's the first common misnomer, really, is that sometimes people think that because someone is trans, they would have had genital surgery to remove the cervix. But we already know that um, around one in five trans men in the US and one in three non-binary people won't won't have had a hysterectomy and and don't want one. Um, So then there are are a number of barriers to accessing cervical screening for this group. And we already know that those existed, again, from research from the United States that showed that this group were less likely to be up to date with screening and less likely to have a successful smear. And that's that's a multifactorial problem. That's to do with the dysphoria, so the, the discomfort that might come with engaging with a part of the body with, that doesn't really align with your felt sense of gender. Um, or to do with the information that you receive or how things are communicated to do with anatomical language. Um, but we knew that above and beyond that, there were some very specific barriers um, in the UK. And, One is that the way that we record sex and gender within the NHS means that if you go to your GP and you record your sex or gender, which is the same one and the same thing at the moment as male, you fall off the the cervical screening register. So you're not automatically called. So there's an additional barrier there. Um, And so taking all of that into consideration, we wanted to do a UK based unique piece of work, exploring those factors more, exploring the factors of this group. Um, and and how we could really improve our cervical screening system to encourage screening and support people to make informed decisions about their screening. Yeah. So this is an important problem for many thousands of people in the UK alone um, who may well be just dropping out of the screening program entirely. And clearly, as you say there, it's about making informed choices or screening programs should be. We're not about imposing them on people. We're about giving people the best advice and making sure they get their get the right access and the right information to make the decisions they want to make. So we'll go on to your research a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what you did, first of all. 
So we recruited uh, trans men and non-binary people assigned female at birth from the Gender Identity Clinic in London, which is the biggest of um, the seven gender identity clinics in England. Um, and then also from 56 Dean Street, which is a trans-specific sexual health service also in London. Um, importantly, it's important to say that the GIC in London, whilst although it's based there, actually sees patients from all over the country. So we had a fairly good um, set to sample from. Um, and essentially, we we contacted all of those that had given us their, their email address and permission to be contacted for research and asked them to fill in uh, an anonymised questionnaire, which asked all about their attitudes and previous experiences of screening. Um, and it had not only um, binary responses or, or, you know, tick the box responses, but some great space for free text. And that's really where we got um, a really rich uh, amount of information um, about how we could shape and mould the screening service better. So it was 141 participants who filled in the survey. So we, we made sure to recruit people um, over 18, but above and below the eligible age for screening, because we see that there are some differing attitudes um, amongst our patients at the GIC to various um, aspects of healthcare, um, sort of generally, generationally. Um, so that's why we did that. Um, but we had 65 of the day were of eligible age for screening. Okay, so you had some really rich qualitative data there as well as sort of some numbers, but there's some really important qualitative stuff. Tell us a little bit about your main findings. Uh, a really important figure for me is firstly that 10% of uh, those who answered this survey clearly didn't want a hysterectomy um, and around 35% were still considering their options. So that for me is big because for a long time, um, this was thought to be a, a niche issue. Um, but if we think that actually 1% of the population are trans or non-binary at least, and then we've got fairly decent numbers not wanting to go for this surgery, this is a significant proportion of people that we really need to think about screening and we don't want to disadvantage. Um, secondly, of those who were eligible for screening, 57% of those had ever been screened. Um, so we really aren't hitting the target. And that's that's fairly unsurprising. We know we're not hitting screening targets well across a number of, of groups with particular needs. Um, but again, this shows that we need more uh, more work in this area. Um, uh, the first thing that I think we and an intervention we've already put into place uh, was providing sufficient information about screening and tailored screening information to this group that is relevant for them. Um, that gives them accurate information um, uh, and which doesn't use dysphoric language, which is going to put people off for screening. So only around about half of those eligible for screening felt they had sufficient information. And we've worked with Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust, who partnered with us on this study to produce just that information, which is available for both healthcare professionals and for patients themselves. Because I think there are a lot of misnomers around screening um, both on both sides um, there's a lot of literature to support the fact that trans people often have to educate themselves about their own health and educational sources are not always reliable and education for healthcare professionals isn't always reliable either so some of our free text comments reflected the fact that people had been given the wrong information um, regarding whether they actually needed to be screened or not yeah so a few different things there what else do you think we could really do differently to help people trans um, trans men and non-binary people to 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 uh, to get over some of these barriers you identified. Um, so I think there are there are things we can do locally, and then there are things that need to be changed policy-wise. 
Um, I guess I'll start with things that are local because, you know, this is a podcast aimed at GPs. Um, the first is really um, educating your, your yourself and your practice generally about trans health. So it's often getting the basics right that builds trust. Um, with this patient population and encourages them to access services. So this is making sure that everyone from the receptionist to the practice nurse to the cleaner knows how to gender someone correctly, use the right name and pronouns, that communications are sensitive, that um, that we check out how people identify and whether there's any language that they find that makes them uncomfortable and really be guided and, and led by them as much as possible. And there's a little bit more in-depth knowledge. So um, specialist sexual health clinics like 56T have you know, produced presentations um, and information. There's information online about how to make the procedure a little bit easier and a little bit less, less dysphoric for patients. Thinking about using relaxant medications, thinking about estrogen cream, allowing more time for appointments. So there's, there's something there around the very specifics of, of doing the procedure. Um, that's really important. And then there's something more around policy. So currently, the best practice guidelines um, produced by um, NHS England and Public Health England really put the burden on to, to patients and their GPs to remember when they need to go for screening, to request screening, to keep a specific list of those who are trans and non-binary need to be screened and to follow up the relevant results. Um, and that really creates a two-tier system. Um, because that's a lot of pressure, particularly in these COVID times, um, when GPs have got a lot on to, to, you know, to think and remember about the specific group of patients, there's a lot of room for error um, when really these patients need to be being called by the call and recall system as anyone else would be. Um, and I know that there are discussions happening. There's a fantastic GP working in East London called Camilla Kamrudin, um, who's been working with NHS Digital towards um, improving this call and recall system. Um, and I think that goes to the kind of wider policy change overall about awareness of trans health and about um, doing uh, sexual health, uh, sexual doing sexual orientation, um, trans status and gender identity monitoring well in healthcare so that we can pick up um, where there are healthcare needs that we are currently missing. Um, steps towards that are happening. We'll be monitoring these things in the census next year. Um, and there are questions that are coming out in healthcare data sets. Um, which um, which are, are on the horizon for, for the next couple of years and have been delayed by COVID. Um, I think one final and fantastic step, and this is more in the realms of research currently, um, is thinking about um, self-swabbing for high-risk HPV, the virus that causes most cervical cancer. Um, pilots of that are already running in London, uh, like the Uscreen project, um, and really, uh, an intervention like that would be fantastic for our um, trans and non-binary people. Um, again, the free text was fantastic for this. So just in terms of numbers, half of our respondents said they'd be interested and another third wanted a bit more information just to make sure that, you know, that this was a good test for them. Um, uh, and they, they voiced things like they could do this test in private. Um, they could get help from a partner or a spouse. They could, you know, build up to, to being able to engage with that part of their body, um, which was really, really important. Um, but before we can really put those uh, interventions in place, we need to think about how we safeguard um, the next steps for what happens to a patient with a positive HPV test. And, and then how do we look after them in gynecological services? So everything really needs to be in place before that can happen. 
A lot to do. Listen, you've done a wonderful job there of summarising already, Alison. But perhaps just to finish on, any would you sort of final key messages that GPs could take away that they can go back to their practices and do a little bit differently in light of your research? Yeah, so I think the takeaway messages from this research are that um, trans and non-binary people um, have uh, specific healthcare needs when it comes to their screening and very specifically cervical screening. And the way to really improve their experience and support them with screening is to have a bespoke approach um, to, to check in with them about the basics in terms of names, pronouns and language um, and to, to engage them in a conversation about what would assist them in making informed choices about screening and how we can support them better. Alison, that's incredibly helpful and um, really useful. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. <laughs>